Hi, I'm Helis Kendrick. And I'm Chris Keane. And this is Series 2 of the Recruit for Spouses podcast. Today we speak to Commodore Mel Robinson, ADC Royal Navy. Mel is a mum, a spouse, and is really values-based and a leader of change. Mel considers personnel and their families a huge attribute to her force, and she was actually the first woman to command a warship. So today we're really, really interested and so delighted to have Mel on the podcast. So Mel, tell us where it all started. Yes, I'll have to go all the way back to being an 18-year-old, finishing my A-levels in Newtown in mid-Wales, leaving there to go to university in Cardiff and emerging from my degree some four years later, understanding that I didn't want to be a scientist necessarily. Had a conversation with my dad, who was a police officer. He didn't necessarily think that joining the police force was a good thing um, for me at that time. I think he had always had his own sort of aspirations to to join the military himself. So he was very proactive in helping me make the decision to join the Navy. Women had just gone to sea. There was a new challenge for women in the organisation, an open door to challenge the status quo, to trailblaze, to step into parts of the organisation that women had never stepped into before. So I think it was just the excitement of travelling the world, seeing different things and having a really exciting career ahead of me that nobody had ever done before. So, you know, the opportunity to be a pioneer and trailblazer was probably the main reason I joined. That's amazing. So were your family in the military at all? No, my father a policeman, my mother a nurse, my grandfather a farmer, my grandmother a seamstress. So quite a very background But of course, associated with my mum and dad were some really innate qualities that we recognise in in our very best leaders in the organisation. My father's sense of social responsibility and wanting to take charge of people and lead. And my mother's beautiful qualities around compassion, caring for people, nurturing and having seen her balance her career, I think, as a nurse demonstrated to me that you could work full-time and have a career and have a family. She was a fantastic role model and I think I went into my own career aspiring to be um, everything that she had delivered to us at home, to be honest. And a role model you indeed are and this is one of the reasons why when I met you, Mel, I was so inspired by the way that you've managed your career with a young family as a mother and a mm. leader obviously a spouse as well. How how have you coped with that in your career? So it's interesting for your listeners, isn't it? Because I'm here because I'm a naval officer in my own right. It is my profession and I've carved a fantastic career for myself. But I'm also a military spouse. So having joined the Navy, I met the man of my dreams. And of course, when I met my husband 25 years ago, the Navy didn't quite have the appropriate policies in place uh, for us to both have seagoing careers and have children. And I think we started our married life with the end in mind. I was always one, I am one, to look out into the future and have a really clear idea as to where I'm going and what I want to achieve. And it was very evident to both of us when we got married that we couldn't both have very fulfilling careers that inevitably involved time away 
and have children. So we had to make the decision as to which one of us would stay mainstream and which one of us would then come to focus on on the family. And we decided that I would offer the children the stability of home and he would continue to pursue his career. So, yes, I speak as a as a naval officer and military spouse. But, of course, the interesting and intriguing thing about my journey is that having taken a very short break away from the Navy to have the children, I took the decision to join another part of the organisation, the Reserves. And being a reservist, it gifted me flexibility and opportunities to be a mother and have that career that I aspire to. So many dual-serving families out there will relate to this. They have that mm. conversation. They have to have that conversation. Who is going to take the back seat? And I think this is a really critical part and really interesting for us. How does that conversation come about? What was said? And you said, well, I will stay at home and look after the children. Was that because your, dare I say, your husband's career was more important at the time? Or what made you actually make that decision at the time when you had the young children? There was a very significant moment in our lives and it was triggered by a world event, which was 9-11. And at that time, my, my husband was in command of a destroyer and was due to deploy in, in response to that. And I was about to go back to work. And by that stage, we had a nine-month-old and a 15-month-old at home. And I just looked at the harsh reality of that and it didn't feel terribly responsible for us to be faced with a significant crisis and be in a position where we were going to potentially have to leave the children. I think I'd go so far as to say that that was maternal instinct. My husband was just slightly ahead of me at the time in terms of his career path. So we went with his career trajectory and I chose to stay at home. Dare I ask the question around a lot of spouses do this, dual serving partners? Was there any sort of level of resentment or did you have the plan that you would go back to it? Or, or what was your thinking around the time? Do you know, there's a natural pause as I um, think about my response to that, because I think when we made the decision to prioritise my care of the children at home, I wasn't convinced at that stage that I'd ever go back to the Navy because. We just didn't have the gravitas and the structure around our reserve forces at the time to convince me that there was a career to be had if I went back. And so there was a short break of two or three years where I thought about an alternative career path. I started what became a lifelong love of learning and personal development and ownership of my own learning. And I came to a crossroads where I was either going to go into teaching or go back to the Navy. So I went to have a conversation and looked at the reserve forces and kind of thought that as a very successful warfare officer in my first career, if I could go into the reserve forces and prove that a woman could have children, resurrect her career and progress through an alternative track, that perhaps I was the one that was to do that. And that's what I did. I went back on reserve service. I took a 15-year journey of self-development. I aligned with my passions around people and learning. And I am now the commander of the Maritime Reserve Force in the UK. So I've absolutely gone from the roots of the organisation and now sit at the top of it. And what a great leader you are to order to help others come up and other women as well sort of raise up through the ranks. Describe how it was the decision for you to go back to reserve forces. At what point were the children, what age were they? 
and also the challenges if you're happy to discuss then what year was it and how difficult was it for you at that point challenges in the school playground standing there as a mother with a uniform on with young children challenged by women around me that perhaps had no real sense of the relationship of the uniform with my responsibilities as a mother really meant. So I kind of felt that there was some sort of societal judgment of of me being there as a as a woman in a uniform and a young mother. Challenged in terms of balancing my career with the children and a deployed husband. By that stage, I was just starting to find myself again in terms of my commitment to work and then finding myself as a single mum at home. And that was really tough in terms of prioritising what I needed to do to get myself back on track and also managing the children. So a lot of energy goes into that. Uh, My response to that challenge of balance was to start to form a network of support around me that extended beyond the service into civilian friends that really sort of went out of their way to support me. And I think it was probably at that stage in my life that I started to understand how important it was to ask for help. I think it's a really difficult thing for women to do. We want to be the be all and end all to our employers and our children, but there comes a time when you're in a a high pressurised job as I was and with young children, the only way out of that was to turn to the network to support me and they did it really well. We'll talk a little bit more around your coaching and mentoring that you've done. But at that point, and I think it's so easy for us to look back, not in rose-tinted glasses, but can look back at those early years and how tough it can be for women, but actually with the right scaffolding and support around how that can really change. And actually, can you now sort of talk around how you've helped others kind of grow in their career and when they're faced with that challenge, how can you support? You've obviously trailblazed now for 25 years. What sort of processes have you put in place to support others in in that position? So I guess this is where we start to talk about my appetite to develop myself as a coach and mentor and understand what tools I wanted to put into my own tool bag to help others progress with their careers. So at the heart of my, my approach as a coach is NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And what I love about that methodology and approach is that it gets you the opportunity to design models that can change your internal language and then introduce different behaviours which can help you achieve fantastic outcomes. I think the beauty of modelling is that we all have to design for ourselves the system that works for us. I look into the Royal Navy and there are many women now that are enjoying very successful careers but one size doesn't fit all. And all of us that have progressed through the ranks have probably got different models of how we have supported our ourselves and our children moving forward. So I think there's something around my coaching and the methodologies and tools that I use to help develop people. But I think a reason that I've found myself progressing to the highest levels in my own organisation is because I got to a stage in my own career where I realised that in order to really help and influence people, women, 
anybody in any underrepresented group, to be honest, you've got to be able to influence policy and you've got to be able to have the vision and the insight, foresight to change structures and systems to make them work better in the future. And the best example of that I have is a project that I designed back in 2013. I called it Firefly because I thought that it conjured up an image of, you know, a beacon of positivity, of light that gifted people the opportunity to seamlessly transfer between regular and reserve service. And that meant that in taking that very sort of strategic approach to change, I didn't just change circumstances for individuals. I came to change systems within the Royal Navy and subsequently in defence that have now facilitated the transfer of all sorts of people across the regular and reserve force so that they can adapt where they are in defence to suit their own personal circumstances. And I think that's had a really positive impact on retention. And most importantly, defence wins because it's allowed us to exploit skills and talents that we otherwise have lost from the system altogether. That's fascinating to hear. And it's really great to hear that you've led the way in that. I mean, your vision must have been something and actually to challenge those norms. And I know myself, Percy, how, how challenging that can be. Talk us around the Firefly, because where did you get the idea? How did you present it to the sort of chain of command? And how did they integrate it eventually into defence? Because that's quite a phenomenal thing to do on itself. How did you do that? So back to my NLP, until such time as something has a name, it doesn't exist. And I realised that there was a means by which we could influence this fluid transfer of skills. I gave it a name. By giving it a name, it then attracted project status within the portfolio, with the project status became resource. And I think fundamentally, the project landed at a time when the government were investing very heavily in bettering the role of reserves and the way in which defence was supporting that part of the organisation. So if there was a lucky break at all, it was that Project Flyfly landed at a time when defence was wanting to increase significantly the number of reserves in the force overall. But more importantly, defence was just starting to wake up to the fact that it needed more women in the system. And Firefly appealed to the government's ambition because, of course, a lot of women that were in the regular force at that time that were leaving then came to identify with this thing, which was Project Firefly. And then they started to move across the system into reserve. And very quickly, we started to see people benefit from that and promote in an alternative system that gave them flexibility around their careers and their families. And I think once it then had that momentum and the gravitas of the government recognising that it was producing really good results, we'd won the battle, really. And so when I reflect today, we have 15% representation of women in the reserve force, and that's slightly higher than the 12% that we see in the regular force. So that would suggest that those processes, seamless transfer processes that we put into place back then are working for defence today. 
and diversifying our force. And I think that's a good thing because I know any number of people in these underrepresented groups that bring a diversity of perspective to defence. And I think that makes us better as an organisation. Do you think, Mel, that what you were just saying there regarding the flexibility, that's on the reserve side, do you think that has helped to push the whole flexible service thing with the regulars now as well? Yeah, because what you saw emerge in the regular force was an appetite to introduce a flexible working model such that people in the regular side of the house could step away from their mainstream careers for a period of time. So the language that we now hear around career breaks uh, happened around the same time as Fireflies and did for, for regulars what Firefly did for people that were, were leaving and subsequently joined the reserves. And what you see now in a 21st century defence model is us bringing those reserve and regular entities even closer together. So at a point in the future, we may see you know, a single force where our policies and processes are simply flexing you know, what we recognise as regulars and reserves today, but in the future will just be people in a system that are being given the opportunity to flex their careers around their lives, which is brilliant. I'll probably get shot down for saying this, but actually quite often in MOD, they see families as a bit of a, a slippery bar of soap. It's hard to, to find things, but to find something like Firefly is, is a really good thing to hold on to. As you said, unless it's got a name, it doesn't exist. But actually, mm. the question I have for you now is around femininity and understanding. How important are those attributes of being a feminine woman? How does that help you to actually get that over the line to break that glass ceiling to you know present that idea I think when I started out I was all about fitting into the system I was absolutely in the minority pushing doors facing occasional resistance to fitting in and just wanting to be part of the system really but I think in taking a break and going back as a reservist There was a point in my subsequent journey where I realised that it was more about standing out than fitting in. And I think somewhere in here is a degree of confidence in my own ability. I became very deeply specialised in in HR, so I was very happy to stand out because I was very proud of the professional credentials that I'd achieved. I was very proud to be a mum. And not all of our senior women in the force have opted to have children. So I was very proud about that. And perhaps as I stepped through my career, I became increasingly mindful and willing and accepting of what I'd achieved. And perhaps part of my standing out and celebrating who I am and being more feminine was accepting that I'd achieved some really good things. And I think I'm more able to do that later in my career than I was in the beginning. So there is a very clear transition there where I was fitting in initially and then celebrating everything that I am to make myself stand out. So, yeah, loud and proud in 2022 and very willing to celebrate everything that is fantastic about being a woman in defence. And as you say, diversity, inclusion and bringing people from all walks of life into the the forces is is such an important thing to do. 
Where do you see mentoring and coaching play a part? Because obviously you're focusing a lot on that now. Where do you see as women in the Navy and across the forces, how when they're developing their careers, how important is mentoring and coaching to them? Coaching, definitely the case. A very personal choice as to whether you want to engage in a relationship which requires absolute honesty in terms of your own reflection on where you are and and where you want to improve. And if you really need to have a supportive relationship and work alongside somebody that can help you overcome some of your sort of self-imposed barriers, I, I think it's a fantastic tool to have available. But more recently, I think I have switched to to really examine the mentoring approach more so. It was the subject of a dissertation I did through the Open University and really allowed me to understand very deeply how important it is to establish ethical frameworks around methodologies such as mentoring. But I think what was very important for me in this context was that being the trailblazer and being at the leading edge of the field, there was an absence of senior women in the organisation that could help me understand, advise me, support me in being a female leader in a predominantly male organisation. So it was in my interest to embrace cross-sector mentoring as an approach because I was able to go out of the organisation, connect with women who had achieved great things at senior levels in different organisations and help me understand how I could take their advice, benchmark where I was in the the Navy and then take that forward. So you have seen me step into mentoring more so because I think it's allowed me to go beyond the Navy and bring those sort of best practices back into the organisation. And you talk about, you know, linking technology to some of your social ventures where you see a lot of alignment. How do you see technology enabling women to take an active role in supporting each other? Because that is is really interesting, isn't it? Is how we move towards this sort of, particularly after COVID, everybody's using online networks. How do you see that in defence? So I think it's just opened us all up to understanding our challenges in a global context. So at a time when you see the Navy transforming itself to influence globally, in an increasingly modern way, assisted by some fantastic revolutions in technology. So it means that you can have conversations with people from other forces around the globe and talk about these global influences and circumstances and apply them to your own setting. So I think it's really broadened us in that way. And, you know, our networks are now extending across into all parts of the globe. I have regular conversations with my reservist colleagues in the United States who are facing similar challenges in terms of how they transform, similar challenges in terms of how they blend women into their workforce. And I think we're able to sort of blend those lessons into our own areas. That's great. And what does the future hold for you, Mel? What do you see in the next five, ten years That's a really good question when you find me at the top of my current structure. So the Navy's just appointed its first female admiral, and that's been a great achievement for the Navy. Admiral Duterte achieved that accolade by chasing a very broad career, a broad regular career, 
that gifted her a very wide set of skills that allowed her to compete across the piece when she came to compete for those high-level positions. I'm in a different position because I chose the reservist career and I chose to specialise. And so I've quite naturally limited the opportunities for me to promote to the next rank. And that's my choice. And I absolutely accept the compromises that I made in my earlier career. So there are some opportunities for me to promote to Admiral, but the opportunities are very limited. And therefore, I always have to have a plan B and plan C in the background so that all of my options are open. And what I find as I come to to this point in my career is that if I promote in the Navy, that would be absolutely fantastic. And it would allow me to, to use those very specialist skills in the area of HR. But what I also sense about me is that introduction to cross-mentoring, that acceptance that there is an interest in understanding through networks and across the globe where people are and how we can all support each other. There is part of me that is at risk of being constrained if I stay in a uniform for too long. And I think by stepping away as when I do step away, I think there's an opportunity for me to be less focused on hierarchy and ambition and promotion and more interested in how I take this breadth of skills and experience and apply them and gift them in different ways. And I can absolutely see there are lessons identified, there are decisions I've made, there are really good techniques that I learned as a young mother to balance a family that are as relevant to the service as they are to lots of women in in lots of areas. So I'm interested in broadening in that way. But equally, Pellas, when I turn to look at your community and I look at the military spouse, I think there's absolutely something that I have an interest in there because I absolutely recognise the limiting beliefs, the self-imposed barriers, the restrictions the attitudes, the behaviours that I put into place as a young mother that I had to overcome through my own sort of learning to get to where I am. And so I'm, I do feel that I'm at a crossroads where, as I say, it's less about ambition and promotion and it's more about taking everything that I've learned, all of those experiences, and just working myself into, into an environment where I can just go away and just have those lovely conversations that helps women have opportunities, take opportunities that they might never otherwise do. But it sounds to me that those crossroads, there's a great future ahead. The next sort of five, ten years are very exciting because, as you've just described, the self-learning and building that self-awareness and educating others around how they can build self-awareness and self-learning. We talk a lot about NLP to spouses. Self-belief, confidence is, is a big thing. Finally, one more thing I'm going to ask you around defence. So spousal employment isn't really a defence issue, but as far as families are concerned, how important is it that the sort of defence understand the importance of family and family behaviours and how best can they support families moving forward? I think my immediate response to that is around culture and behaviours. The best way that we can make some progress here is to demonstrate and celebrate what we are already doing really, really well. When I look to our charities, when I look to our policy desk in our own sort of personal and training team, 
when I look into chief defence people up in the centre, I absolutely believe that we are an organisation absolutely committed to understanding how we support the whole family. So I say in, in the reserve side of the house, a reservist can't deploy without their family members. And so it is in our interest to continue to design policy, deliver processes that allow us to exist in this space. I think for military spouses that, for example, are working with people deployed, I think there's more that we can do there to give the whole family the opportunity to work overseas in harmony. I'm not quite convinced we've got that right. But I think fundamentally, Helen, it's about demonstrating our good work through our behaviours. And I think we do do that in defence really well. I just want to ask you on your sort of other hobbies, because you, you are now a Reiki master and a hypnotherapist. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just describe a little bit more about how that's impacted on you as a person and, and your career? So some people will find that eclectic mix to my toolbox curious. I reached into Reiki for personal reasons. When I first started practicing coaching, I observed that I was inclined to not just listen to a person's conversation, but sometimes take on their negative energy. And I think in order to coach effectively, I just had to add another tool into the box, which allowed me to protect my own energies. And if for whatever reason I did take some of those sort of negative energies on, that I had a place to go to indulge in some self-healing. So that's been really useful. But I think it's most curious because you start to observe people, conversations, body language, behaviours on another level. And I think it encourages you to see the whole person. And sometimes an untrained eye will take on the language and look at the sort of physical behaviours and miss the energy that rests beneath. So... Reiki's been really a really interesting tool for me. And hypnotherapy comes back to, I think, again, the value of self-reflection. I think the most powerful technique I've had in my own personal development is, is the ability to relax, reflect, so that I can continue to be the best version of myself. And I think there's something very beautiful about hypnotherapy that draws you to language the words people use, how they use them, the cadence in the voice, the way that you present to different audiences, the way that you can take people on a journey through your own sort of presentations can be quite sort of hypnotic and trance-like, both in the way that you observe other people and, and also in how you present yourself. So some softer skills, I'd say, that really appeal to the femininity and the innate qualities that I would like to think I exude on a fairly consistent um, basis because, you know, I have been known to say that the best thing you can be as a leader is predictable and consistent in terms of your delivery and in terms of the attention you can give people when they're in the room. I must say, I did watch your keynote, your 45-minute keynote, and really liked what you did. You started off in uniform. Do you want to describe that a little bit more and what happened in that keynote? Because I, I thought it was great. Yeah, I think as you step into a promotional structure that has a hierarchy, there's always going to be the risk that you don't promote to the next higher rank. 
And that particular presentation was delivered at a time when I was I was a captain on the cusp of promotion to Commodore. And I was really challenging assumptions around what I wanted to do next in my career, who I was, and specifically how I was going to take on the mantle of being the commander of the Maritime Reserve. So it was a really sort of pivotal point in my career. And in challenging my assumptions, I started to challenge the essence of self, because I think there is always a risk when you work in an organisation that wears a uniform, that you start to represent yourself first and foremost through the role and the rank that you hold as opposed to the person that you are. And what I was saying through that presentation is that the organisation quite naturally identifies with then Captain Mel Robinson and the role I had. And I was really wanting to take the uniform away and demonstrate to the audience I had on that day that actually the strength of the leader lay within. So as much as the Navy has gifted me all of the experience and some great training to be a great captain, the essence of the conversation was that my mother was a nurse, my father was a policeman, and the best qualities that I deliver into my working environment every day have come from my home and my upbringing. And that means that it has been very easy for me to prioritise being a mother over being a captain, commodore, commander, lieutenant, commander, lieutenant. At the end of the day, in five or ten years' time, I trust I will always be married and I will always be a mother, but I won't always wear a uniform and I won't always be in the Navy. And I think that it's really important that we just always remind ourselves of the values that we hold within because that's what makes us the unique human beings that we are. And if there's one thing that you would say, if there was a woman now, whether she feels lost about her career or whether it's somebody who's actually in the military themselves and they're not quite sure as to what to do, what would you say to that person now who's not quite sure as to where her career is going at the moment? I guess my advice is that my model of success has structure. And I've always taken the time to look out into the future in realistic steps to understand what I have to build into Commodore Mel Robinson to be the next version of self. So success has structure. And my model for structuring success is absolutely underpinned by role models. So I've gone out of my way to identify women and men in my professional and personal life that are an inspiration to me. And I look at them in their professional spaces. I ask myself what I like about them. And I go away and I ask myself how I can either build that into the system or make better of a quality that I already have. And there are some great examples out there. Deborah Haynes, I think her reporting in the Ukraine currently as a young mother has been absolutely fantastic. And you look at the way in which she reports absolutely tragic circumstances with humanity, but is doing that with absolute grit and a degree of courage that I think really stands out in her field. I talk about reverse mentoring. So I look back down into my organisation to people that are a constant inspiration to me in terms of the specialist knowledge they have that perhaps I don't. And I'm going to bring it all the way back to home. The best role model I have is my mother, sadly no longer with me. 
that we talk about the challenges that we face as modern day mothers in terms of balancing our lives. But, you know, my mother was doing this 50 years ago and did it so well that she gifted me the attitude, behaviours, the confidence to go out and be the person I am. So I would say to any of your military spouses, build your network, design your model of success, identify your role models and aspire to be like them and be a better version of yourself every single day. Thanks for listening to the Recruit for Spouses podcast today. Our guest was Commodore Mel Robinson and we hope you enjoyed it. We talk to industry experts all the time and we hope that this will really help you to build all of those useful hacks around finding work as a military spouse. To listen to our other episodes, all you have to do is search for the Recruit for Spouses podcast wherever you normally get your podcast from. 